Welcome to American Midterms. Before we get to the interview, let's talk about some current news. All right, so this week I got the chance to attend a gubernatorial forum at Quinnipiac University. Um, They were able to host Governor Lamont and Bob Stefanowski. They also invited business leaders in the greater New Haven area to ask them questions about taxes and the economy and businesses, all that great stuff. It was an interesting event. When they spoke, they essentially said the same things about everything except for taxes. Bob Stefanowski, he's the Republican candidate for governor here in Connecticut. He introduced a tax plan, a $2 billion tax plan, which cuts into um, the state's rainy day funds to give relief for people. So essentially, they're paying less taxes at the end of the day. They both want to improve roads and trains and transportation. They're both pro-life, and they both made pretty similar dad jokes about being being parents or just, just being unliked by, by people of the other party. Um, but this is not what is happening across the country right now. Across the country, Republicans are not like Bob Stefanowski. They are not having you know cordial business meetings with um, business leaders in the area. Across the country, Republicans are not like Bob Stefanowski. There are many Republicans who are poor candidates and are risking Republicans' chances of taking the House and taking the Senate. Now for an update on the midterm elections forecast. As you know, my favorite political analysis site, 538, um, they gave a the Republicans a two-thirds chance to capture the House and the Democrats a 70% chance to maintain control of the Senate. It also gives the Dems a 31% chance to hold onto both houses, which, might I remind you, would mean the House, the Senate, and the presidency once again. This doesn't mean much if the Democrats can't get all 50 senators on board for certain legislation, something they have struggled with, um, with Joe Manchin being in the Senate and Kristen Sinema being in the Senate. But that would still be fantastic, fantastic news for the Democrats. Uh, and it would be an earth-shattering defeat for Republicans in a year, a midterm year, where they where they were poised for easy wins in the Senate, especially. This is due in part to bad candidates and election deniers. One such candidate is J.R. Majewski, who claims to have served in Afghanistan, but a recent news story has said he was never there. He was helping load planes elsewhere. Um, I mentioned Dr. Oz in my latest podcast. Um, Roe v. Wade and Trump are dragging other Republicans down with them. Um, As you have seen a plethora of legal cases mounting against Donald Trump, the news cycle has not been kind to him. Now the Republicans are scrambling. Um, They're trying to change their campaigns to distance themselves from Trump, deleting pro-life posts and tweets. Kevin McCarthy has even introduced a quote-unquote, commitment to America plan focused on popular issues such as inflation and saved towns. Will this work? What do I think? I I doubt the Republicans are going to win the Senate this fall, this November. I, I spoke about Dr. Oz, who has basically blown Republicans' chances of picking up a House seat, or actually maintaining a House seat in Pennsylvania against John Fetterman. Blake Masters in Arizona is another poor candidate in a state, you know, that voted for Joe Biden, albeit narrowly, but voted for Joe Biden, a state that had John McCain represent them in the Senate for a long, long time. And um, Trump famously insulted John McCain, who was a prisoner of war. So I I don't think it's going to work for them in the Senate. That being said, the House certainly looks more favorable. In terms of the House, I think 
it's going to be a nail biter, but the Republicans are in a good position right now. The generic ballot has Republicans on average about three points ahead of the Democrats. Those numbers taken across the country do give the Republicans a lead. They are going to want that majority. If the Democrats maintain control of the Senate, if they pick up a seat or two, if they pick up a seat in North Carolina or hold on in Georgia, um, you know, they're going to want that House majority to prevent Biden's agenda, to prevent all the legislation that he has talked about since being elected. We will see what happens. The election is November 8th. Make sure to vote, guys. Whoever whoever you want to vote for, I don't care. Just make sure you fill out your ballot. You can you can go online, get an absentee ballot, send it in the mail super easily. But this decision is up to you. It is not up to Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It is up to, up to us. It is our right to vote. And I want you guys to have a say in these issues. Just a quick disclaimer for everybody listening today. The interview with Jamie Stevenson is an awesome conversation, but our sound quality is not up to par and you can expect it not to sound like our other episodes. We were having some technical difficulties. Um, This is a one-time thing and I hope you guys can still enjoy the conversation. You can expect awesome sound quality with our next interview. Welcome, Jamie Stevenson. You have been a first selectman in Darien for a decade, and you are currently the Republican nominee to represent Connecticut's fourth district in Congress. Welcome. Thanks for being here. You're running to become one of the first women, one of the first, not first, um, first one in, I think, three quarters of a century, first mom to represent Connecticut, um, the southwestern portion of Connecticut in Congress. What does that feel like? Are you waiting for election day to kind of just let that set in? What has that experience been like so far for you? It's a tremendously positive experience for me, a privilege and an honor to run. Uh, and thinking back about the fact that Claire was the only other woman to hold the fourth congressional seat. She was elected 80 years ago, um, served for five years. Uh, so I, you know, I feel um, I feel strongly that I have a lot to offer based on my experience as not only a local leader, um, I also served in regional and statewide leadership positions, but probably most importantly as a mom to my five children. Uh, so I, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about my background if you think your listeners would be interested in that. Yeah, go for it, Jamie. Great. I had uh, the blessing of having an outstanding public education which was so foundational um, to everything that I worked hard to achieve in my life. My brother and I, my only other sibling, were the first in our family to go to college. My brother was, um, he was the smart one in the family. So he got a commission to the United States Air Force Academy, so my parents did not pay for his education. Um, but my parents uh, took every step that they had to help me go to college. Uh, so I graduated from Arizona State with a degree in telecommunication business management. All right. Um, and didn't use a day of that. I went to, excuse me, went to Wall Street and I was a bond analyst for Standard and Poor's um, in a new department of asset-backed finance at the time. Until I, I stopped working, I was lucky enough to be able to stay home to um, raise my five children who all went to public school here in Darien and chose Southwestern Connecticut and the town of Darien. My husband grew up here. 
uh, for the express reason that it was commutable to New York, uh, where my husband was still working at the time on Wall Street, and uh, great public education. So great education is so important to me, and I, I just believe so strongly that every child in our country, but especially here in the district that I am hoping to represent, deserves a great high-quality education. It just sets the foundation for every opportunity for success in our future. Um, in 2009, I joined the Board of Selectmen, Darianne. In 2011, I was elected first selectman and then won every election until last year when I retired myself because I believe in term. Mm. I actually already signed the term limit pledge for the federal government, um, so I walked that walk, and I believe that term limits are, are key to solving many of the issues that we see and feel today, the divisiveness um, in the political realm, and elected officials staying too long uh, because they're feathering their own nest rather than doing what's right for the people yeah. that they serve. you have some refreshing ideas there and you've had um, an impressive career so far. Um, what was it like being a leader, being a selectman during the pandemic and how did you first react to this and how did this shape how you were hoping to govern? Well, first, I loved every minute of being first selectman, uh, both the good times and the bad times. And um, in a small town like Darien, um, we need to be necessarily self-sufficient. You know, the state of Connecticut views us as um, a very fortunate, quote-unquote, wealthy town. Um, so we don't get much financial support for any of the work that we do. Um, so as, as a local leader and somebody who had worked in the private sector and in the finance industry, it was critically important for me to understand fiscal discipline and how to set budget priorities. So I have a great deal of, of budget building and um, priority decision-making background. Through my years as first selectman, uh, the pandemic wasn't the first emergency that I had to help manage. 
Mm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, what I'll say, uh, and certainly foundational to my leadership during the pandemic, communication is the key. You have to always be willing to share information, keep your residents updated, even when you have to tell them things that they might not want to hear. It's so important to be open and honest. So I had that experience, you know, many of those experiences managing through difficult times, um, you know, right off the heels of the financial crisis was when I came into my public service. So we had that in, in the background. Um, but it certainly was difficult uh, to even begin to know where to start with a historic global pandemic. I, you know, few of us um, are still around to remember the only other global pandemic that that we faced here in the United States. And for every planning document that our public health system might have, um, there's nothing like the real thing to show you that, you know, um, real experience is the best way to be educated and prepare for the next one. Uh, you know, the pandemic plans that they had going into the COVID pandemic were pretty much useless. Um, and I would say they were useless because local governments were not responsible for managing the pandemic on their own. Mm. You know, we, the, gover- the governor took control of pandemic management and we lived by executive order for you know, a good year and a half. And that made it very challenging for local leaders like myself. You know, first of all, I needed to have my town attorney on speed dial to really um, understand all the legal nuance to those executive orders. I'm sure. And then to thread that needle uh, about mandates. You know, I, I know that there were so many things that happened during the pandemic that um, that really set not only our economy but the mental health of our residents. So I tried very hard as a town to not impose any additional mandates on uh, people that I served uh, other than what the governor required us to do. And that really was quite a challenge because, in essence, we were responsible for managing fear. Government put a lot of fear, and, you know, the disease itself put a lot of fear in people, and uh, managing fear is a very, very challenging thing. So um, I, I... educated my residents. I spoke to them every week um, with a routine phone call on Thursdays to update them on the status. And, uh, you know, we were hands-on. Our government never stopped working. We never closed our doors. Um, we knew that we had to be there for everyone, uh, regardless of their need. Uh, so it, it will go down in my memory as one of the most challenging times uh, in my life to, um, to work as a leader. I think a lot of leaders can relate to that, certainly. Um, I want to shift to something a little more current, a um, little, little disheartening. Um, as you know, two police officers were shot and killed, and another was injured this week in Bristol, Connecticut. Is there something you would do to help protect police officers if elected to Congress? Yes, this is, this is a beyond tragic occurrence. Unfortunately, it's a pretty routine occurrence. I saw a statistic yesterday that said uh, between last Monday and today, there have been 12 officers. 
Wow. Oh. It's so heartbreaking. It's so unnecessary. Uh, and I get a little bit angry on this topic because I work very closely with um, the Darien Police Department's first summer. And I know that if you don't have safety and security in your communities, you really have nothing else. It's so foundational to, um, to the success of any community. And, and all police officers deserve so much credit for the work that they do to keep all of us safe. But the federal government, the leadership in federal government, and the leadership in our state government um, have really vilified law enforcement over the last two years. And I know that the officers across our state are very, very discouraged um, that they really can't do the job that they need to do. Um, and I think a lot of things came from the Police Accountability Bill here in the state of Connecticut, um, one of those was the idea that you would send social workers instead of police, or in addition to police officers, um, on domestic calls. Right. Well, this incident should be the case study for why you don't send social workers on domestic calls. Mm. Because these, uh, unfortunately, these officers were ambushed. And I'm looking forward to about, um, you know, the background of the perpetrators. It doesn't sound like they had a criminal background, but, you know, the bottom line is police officers put their uniform on every day. They walk out the door, they say goodbye to their family, and their family doesn't know who they're going to and, and I am a huge supporter of law enforcement. I will always be a huge supporter. We've been endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police and a number of police associations I believe so strongly that without highly trained, skilled police officers, um, America will continue to be in crisis, and we're seeing it all across our country. Yeah, you spoke about the police accountability bill. Do you think it's the media? Do you think it's the conversations um, people are having amongst themselves? Um, maybe a false perception. Why is there such a big um, problem with police nowadays, and why does it take um, you know a tragedy? such as this, to kind of recognize what they do for our communities? I think that oftentimes government overreacts. You know, I'd like to believe that every police officer is highly skilled and well-trained. That may not be the case, but what I do know, because I've spoken to many police officers about this, the people get angry the most about police officers who aren't skilled make mistakes like we saw in the terrible murder of George Floyd. Other police officers, you know, don't want bad officers on their police force. So, uh, you know, I know that the officer corps that I work with, um, they do a very good job of kind of rooting out the people that really aren't meant to be police officers. So I think government has overreacted. I think it will likely swing back to equilibrium. I pray that it does because you can you can just see what's happening across this country. You know, uh, in Philadelphia, you know, a mob of a hundred people descending on a Wawa. Mm. Um, you know, just uh, terrible crime, violent crime, uh, the fentanyl crisis, which is something else I'd love to talk with you about today. 
Um, and now we have a situation where uh, it's very hard to get anyone to want to sign up to be a police officer because, you know, in, in that instant that they have to make a decision, um, they could be held civilly liable and they could um, lose, lose everything they've worked hard for. And um, it's a really difficult place for officers to be right now. So I hope, I hope the equilibrium uh, swings back to a more moderate stance because we need our police officers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the fentanyl crisis. I'd be happy to talk about that today. Um, what do you think should be done to try to combat this this growing problem? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to secure our southern border. Um, it's well known that the uh, raw materials to make fentanyl uh, are being shipped into Mexico, uh, and I've also read that into Canada, and then manufactured into powders and pills. And right now, uh, there have been reports and arrests made of rainbow fentanyl, rainbow-colored pills mm. packaged into um, Halloween candy packages. So now we have to worry that our children might come in contact with fentanyl this Halloween season. Um, you know, and I, I think it, this touches so many of our lives. I certainly know that it's touched my life and some friends who lost a loved one young man, senior in college, um, thought he was taking a Percocet, and it wasn't. It was fentanyl, and it killed him. It's different than addiction, because this is poison. One pill can kill you. So, you know, just just sort of a, like a public service announcement here for a moment. No one should ever buy any kind of medication on social media. And this is an area where I, I can't wait to get to because I believe Congress can play a role in making sure that social media channels aren't uh, inadvertently trafficking in uh, illegal drugs. Um, so we have to secure the border and make sure that our DEA agents and our Border Patrol um, can spend their time to, to find and apprehend uh, the, the cartel mules that are bringing these substances into the United States you know, right now they're busy managing the four million migrants that have come into uh, the United States over the last two years. You know, thousands of people every day. So there just isn't time. There's enough people to be able to do the kind of drug um, investigations and law enforcement that we need. Yeah, um, I want to bring up reproductive rights. Um, you are pro-choice. Um, I was wondering, how did you come to take this stance? Um, it's something a lot of women are concerned about nowadays. And is it difficult being a pro-choice Republican, having a more moderate view on reproductive rights? So I'm very secure in my feelings about the importance of being pro-choice. But I want to talk a little, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit more in depth about it. Because Please. It's, a, it's an issue that I don't think should be boiled down into the sound bites of pro-life it is not black and white, for sure. Of course, I am also pro-life. I have five amazing children and two beautiful grandchildren. And fortunately, I have never had to make that very difficult decision um, to have an abortion. But as a Republican, as a principled Republican, I believe in freedom and personal liberty. Mm. So I don't think you can pick and choose what freedoms you want to uphold. And I see this as a personal 
own medical decision to the advice of her doctor and her family, but with guardrails. Um, the political left is very extreme in their viewpoints. They believe that abortion should be allowed up until the moment of birth. That's a radical idea. I don't know anyone that supports that idea. Um, most Americans believe that, you know, generally the first trimester of pregnancy, um, women should have the opportunity to um, make whatever decision that she needs to make, except in the case where uh, there's a medical necessity or rape or incest um, than some time latitude. Um, you know, the state of Connecticut has long ago codified um, the tenets of Roe v. Wade into statutes, so people that live here in Connecticut um, have, uh, still have and will always have rights protected. But what the decision this summer did, in my opinion, which is egregiously wrong, um, and I do believe in states' rights, you know, that the, the Supreme Court didn't say you couldn't have an abortion. It simply said that states now get to decide the rules for their state. Right. Um, and states' rights is an important constitutional tenet. But what's happened is we've now created a system of medical inequality across our and this is the only issue for which medical inequality exists across our country. So I look forward to being uh, a voice of reason and rationality at the congressional table. I hope that I get to have this conversation with leadership um, when I get to Washington to the next congresswoman. I think it's important to have women at the table to have this conversation. And I'd also like to say this. Being pro-choice is not just about being pro-abortion. Being pro-choice also means that I support women who decide to give birth to their children. Um, and you know, there's a lot of great stories that I've heard recently from women who had an unwanted pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy, but couldn't make the decision to have an abortion. They 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 had the they made the decision to actually carry the baby to term and give birth to the child. But our federal government funding system doesn't support organizations um, that help women to carry their babies to term and give birth to their babies. So it's a system that's out of balance. So pro-choice to me means a right to decide on abortion up to a certain point, but also Jamie, I've got one more question for you. Um, you know, I'm curious where else you might separate um, from other Republicans right now. I'm a little hesitant to put you on the spot here, but um, January 6th, the committee is wrapping up their investigations, their findings right now. I am curious what you think of January 6th um, and what you think of the former president's role in that. January 6th is a dark day. I don't know any of the violence that happened that day. And I think the January 6th committee, I hope that they are um, going to finish up. Um, I'd like to believe that their investigation is unbiased. I'm not sure that it is. Um, what I haven't heard yet, what I need to hear, is uh, an analysis of um, what security was uh, called for by Speaker Pelosi that day. I know for a fact that they had um, 
indications prior to January 6th that there might be unrest. And I, I would like to feel confident that the speaker in her role of managing uh, overseeing security for the Capitol uh, made sure that every single resource was available and activated to keep people safe. I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, I believe that the former president had an opportunity to quell the violence that day or quell the, the pending violence that day. And um, for whatever reason, he chose not to do that. But I'll leave the investigative work to um, the legal particulars, to uh, the lawyers and other, other folks who are much closer to me than I am. Thank you for listening to this episode, a production of QU Podcasts. I'm Matt Harlock, and our producer is Grace McGuire. Our videographer is Tyler Salter, and our social media coordinator is Olivia Geckler. Music from Free Music Archive. Be sure to follow us, American Midterms, on Instagram. See you next week.